0: Just a friendly reminder that uh, next week's topic is uh, Neoliberalism, Trump and the Return of Populism. Um, The speaker will be Dr. Trevor Harrison. Um, For all those that would like to get a SACPA membership, uh, please do see Annalise before you go today. Um, They are $25. So, for the question and answer period, there is a microphone um, placed up front uh, for you to go to. Um, please keep your comments brief and to to the point. And um, with that, I would like to welcome back uh, George Takashima.
1: Hi, George. Hello, oh News. Is, my name is Knut Peterson. Uh, I was also had the pleasure of uh, taking a tour. Uh, it actually, it was uh, Michelle's and my uh, honeymoon. We went, we went with George on our honeymoon.
0: <laughs>
1: and regarding Michelle, SACPA uh, is actually not really supposed to make any announcement other than SACPA events, but it's up, it's uh, at the discretion of the chair to decide on what announcements we make here. So I asked myself if it was okay to make an announcement, (laughs) and and the answer was yes. (laughs) Um, The Japanese Garden has a wonderful Winter Lights Festival happening, uh, but yeah. In many ways, thanks to Michelle, <coughs> but there 's one more weekend left to go, and the weather sounds really good for this weekend and she might actually have ten thousand if enough uh, enough people comes out this weekend so that 's pretty impressive uh, and the last uh, day of the winter lights Festival is on February the second, uh, which is the seventy uh, fifth anniversary of the Japanese uh, being interned so uh, and there's uh, there's going to be beer beer that night so uh, to so you can celebrate or whatever anyway my question today is uh, related to George uh, I know that you had some pushback okay. from within the Japanese community talking about all this that you told us about today could you uh, expand a little bit about that?
2: There are still a lot of uh, older Japanese uh, Canadians who uh, don't like to talk about internment. They like to forget about it. Some continue to be bitter about the experiences they had during the Second World War. And uh, uh, for whatever reason, they will not let that bitterness go and so when I was going around trying to get stories I often was met with uh, why the hell do you want to do that for why do you want to resurrect something that was not good experiences for us and that was the kind of uh, commentaries that I received and so to this day I haven't been able to collect enough stories to make some kind of a book telling about the history of the internment era.
3: My name is Jean Fennel, and I was one of the lucky ones that went with George to the Ghost Town Tours. And I would like you, George, to tell us just a little bit about the living conditions in New Denver.
2: New Denver was one of the ghost towns, and all of a sudden, overnight, over 1,000 people uh, came into New Denver to what they call the orchard. And in that orchard, which is uh, uh, not really that big, they managed to build shacks, uh, small shacks, and a little larger shack. Uh, The larger shack was something like 14 by 28 and they would have two rooms on either side at the end, and they would have a common area in the center, yeah. kitchen, so on. Uh, these shacks were built with fresh lumber. So you can imagine that over time, around a year or less, the wood would shrink and there would be air holes. And so then the people would have to either get tar paper or cardboard or newspapers, whatever they can find to cover these air holes. That was the kind of a a situation that they lived in. There were two families put into this small area, and they would be two families who did not know one another, who may have come from a different prefecture. Remember I said in my talk that before the war, they lived in communities, and usually they came from the same prefecture. But here, in the internment camps, people were thrown together. And uh, uh, they had to put up with one another in these, uh, uh, what I call a shacky condition. They had a pot-belly stove in the center, where they did their cooking. No running water. No electricity until later on, uh, around 1943, uh, towards the end of 1943, when electricity was brought into these camps. So these shacks were built side by side. You could see a picture of it, uh, and uh, they were uh, uh, just put together overnight, and so uh, uh, there was nothing... uh, there was nothing uh, uh, good about it. In the winter, it was cold as ha- cold as cold can be. In the summer, it was hot as Hades. Uh, nothing that they can do uh, to uh, live a comfortable um, lifestyle within the shack. The weather played a great deal of havoc uh, into their daily living.
4: Hi, my name is Karen Tui. Um, when you mentioned that, um, the the Japanese people said, we need to not, um, continue with our culture, um, did you mean outwardly, or did they still Mm -hmm. keep it going in the home? And if, if it was total obliteration, do you feel that that was a good thing, like that? And is, the, is there a movement towards bringing that back mm-hmm. at this current time, re-educating um, uh, Japanese families in
2: Japanese culture that are in Canada? Yeah. I think, I think in the first uh, part, uh, in, the, in the latter part of the 1940s and through the 50s, uh, people, the Japanese, particularly the Issei's, those who came from Japan, They wanted to show just how loyal they were to Canada. Canadian citizenship was very important. And in order to do that, you had to get rid of this Japanese-ness. Culture, language, everything. It's only in the last maybe 40 years that people started to kind of uh, get around to uh, revisiting this. And of course, today there's a number of third and fourth generation uh, Japanese Canadians who uh, are interested in their history. But remember, I said that uh, the marriage proportion, 85%, have intermarried. And so the ch- sons and daughters today are what we call hapa. And hapa was a term that uh, two to uh, a young couple from Hawaii term. They were both uh, from intermarriages. And they both, uh, for whatever reason, got this term Hapa to refer to sons and daughters who were born from intermarriages. And so you'll find that there are many, many Hapas here in southern Alberta, let alone across Canada. I have... Uh, I have three children, I have uh, eight grandchildren. And you wouldn't believe that I have a, a blonde-haired grandson, <laughs> blue eyes. Uh, it's amazing. And uh, when he was little and I uh, used to take him downtown in Winnipeg, um, people would wonder, what's this guy doing with this little kid? And i have to say, well, he's my grandson. <laughs> You've got to be kidding. But that, you see, that, that's... And you'll see that right across southern Alberta, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, descendants of uh, intermarriages.
5: Hi, my name is Henning Mundel, and I have two questions with two brief preambles. <coughs> First of all, I came to Canada in '51 from Germany, and so on the schoolyard, I, w- I was familiar with uh, racism. In my case, it was bloody Germans rather than, and of course, I didn't look differently ethnically. But, a few years later, I joined the band in Oliver, BC, where I went to school. And then we started exchanges with Kelowna, and it really puzzled me. Why were there no Japanese students in our school in Oliver? I looked into that a bit, so apparently, although it wasn't written like there, Japs keep moving, but apparently, there was an unwritten bylaw that after the war, the Japanese actually wanted to also settle in Oliver, but they were told, move on, move on, don't settle here. So, one relates to do you have any evidence? Were there ever any such bylaws actually written out? Okay, that's the one question. The other one was when I went to university, my first roommate came from Japan. His mother had, they lived in Canada. His mother went back to Japan to have him when the internment took place. His dad was interned, so the first time he saw his dad was that summer in Prince George when he was 19 years old. I wondered, you mentioned about the racism before the war, I just wondered, did many of the women go home
2: home to Japan to have their children? So that's the other one. Okay. Uh, and the first question, um, yeah... Uh, it was only in 1949 that the Japanese were allowed to go back to the West Coast. But uh, there were still hostile feelings in British Columbia uh, that they wanted to get rid of the Japs. They would say, send them back to, to, to Japan. I mean, this was said even after the war years. A lot of them chose to move east, uh, where the climate was, climate was much better. Uh, than in BC at that time. To your second question, um, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, a, lot, a lot of them were, well, as I said, about 4,000 were re- repatriated. Uh, they didn't necessarily go back to Japan to have children uh, but uh, a lot of them decided that Japan was not a place to live. They were not welcome because you could remember, you could, you could imagine the havoc uh, in Japan right after the war. Their communities were bombed right out and shortage of food and housing and whatever else uh, that goes along with the uh, remnants of war. And to have all these guys and gals come back come back, as well as come to Japan. It was a burden. And while some people were welcomed back, a lot of them were told, go back to Canada, go back to the United States. We don't want you here. And that created a, you can imagine, the the, the tension between family members. In many cases, uh, there were situations where, while you went to Canada, you went against our wishes. You are no longer in our books. So you go back to Canada because we don't want you. So those were the kinds of situations that existed in Japan after the war.
4: Uh, my name is Van Christou. And uh, thank you so much for, for being here with us today. As you can see, there's been a tremendous response from the number of people here to, to hear you, George. Um, I hope that I'll be permitted to make a couple of short comments rather than uh, to ask questions. Um, the first comment I'd like to make is that we are a, cu- a multicultural society here and, uh, and getting to be more so all the time. And here in Lethbridge, we're particularly proud of the fact that one of the most evident bits of multi- multiculturalism here is the Japanese Garden. Uh, it's not only a thing of real excellence in our community, but it's also a demonstration of a real class act on the part of people who were treated so badly and yet came back and presented that garden to the city of Lethbridge as a 1967 centennial gift. Um, I think that that's something that has to be spoken over and over again. The second comment I'd like to make is that You mentioned that a lot of people that react to your talking about these things because they forget about them. George, don't listen to them. I think your way of uh, presenting it, and the the, uh, straightforwardness with which you do it, and so on, is of continuing value for all of us to understand the terrible aspects of discrimination. So I would encourage you to keep it up. Uh, we're all behind you. Thank you.
2: There's, thank you. There's a, a piece, this is a piece of history that is not taught in schools. Uh, it's only in recent years that there have been units of studies developed by groups of teachers across the land in high school, but it's never been part of the curricula. And this is one of the aims that we wanted to... Uh, pursue was to get this story told through the curriculum. Um, The other thing that I wanted to mention was the fact that uh, some of the uh, Japanese would say, what's the purpose of telling your story? And the purpose is it's a history that people need to know. It's a history that, that we need to learn from. And in particular, in this day and age, with Trumpism on the rise, we need to be aware of what can happen, not only in the United States, but here in Canada. And so we need to make sure that this kind of thing does not repeat itself again. Um, Then I also want to mention that um, I'll, I'll, I'll mention it later <laughs> yeah. Douglas Mitchell
3: George your passion in your speech reminded me of Sir Walter Scott the second most famous Scottish poet said breathes there a man with soul so dead who never to himself has said, this is my home, my native land. And even though we have integrated, all of us have from various places around the world. The question I really want to (laughs) ask you was regarding the Chinese. And I'm concerned with Mr. Trump's access to the presidency. Uh, Could you, have you any notion on the, the relationship between the Japanese and the Chinese in Vancouver, particularly in the the, uh, early years. The Chinese, of course, came to build the railway primarily, and that's where they started, but they're very deeply entrenched there now, and there's a worry about just how deeply involved we want to get, and with Trump's attitude towards China, have you any thoughts on the Chinese situation developing to the point where we may maybe a backlash
2: against the Chinese community. Uh, In the early years, there there was definitely a tension between the uh, Chinese and the Japanese because the Japanese, the Japan Japanese, always thought of themselves as being superior in the world. Never mind Asia. They were superior to China, to Korea, and other Asian countries. And, uh, you know, there's been stories and histories about the, uh, for example, the Chinese-Japanese War prior to World War II. Um, So that tension has always existed, even into the Second World War here in North America. Not just uh, Canada, but even south of the border. There were uh, tensions between the Chinese and the Japanese. In recent years, by recent, I mean post-war years, the Japanese and the Chinese, uh, especially because of the second and third generations, people have come to acknowledge one another. They have come to uh, respect one another, and there is a very good relationship between the Chinese and the Japanese here in Canada. there are, as I said, intermarriages not only with the Caucasian community, but also with Chinese and Koreans uh, in, in our country. Um, the, um, one problem that seems to arise and have arisen is uh, you, you know the story about the Chinese from China coming in recent years and buying up property, in Vancouver especially. Uh, And uh, so they lump Chinese from China with the Chinese here in Canada, and that's a problem. We lump people together. Uh, We know for example that in the Japanese circle sometimes the people who come from Japan and the people born and raised in Canada do not uh, get along too well. They avoid one another. Now, here in Lethbridge, luckily, we do get along with one another uh, because it's a smaller group. You know, immigration from Jama- Japan to southern Alberta is not as big as, say, in Vancouver, Toronto, and Calgary. But, but people do get along here. But across the country, uh, it's a hit and miss from Vancouver to Toronto.
3: Alan Story, thank you. It's a very humbling experience to listen to that, le- that lecture. When Stevie Wonder was being interviewed, uh, he was asked about his blindness. And after he told the interviewer, she asked, I can't imagine anything worse than being born blind. And Stevie said, I can She said, what would that be? He said, I could have been born black. Ah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In discrimination is the scourge of mankind and it doesn't seem to be diminishing on any front anywhere. Would you care to comment from your experience um, on our current immigration policies? Are we on the right track? Are there things you'd like to see done differently?
2: Um, you're, you're talking about the recent immigration from Europe? Current policies. Current policies. Um, I think the policies are in themselves good. Uh, I think we need to be, uh, uh, careful in the sense that, uh, uh are we able to accommodate everyone who comes here uh, with uh, the kind of livelihood they need to have. Uh, I'm thinking in terms of jobs. Bringing people into, one, into a country is one thing, but are they able to survive? Uh, I'm always looking at that angle. Are there jobs here that will be something that they can and en- handle in our country. Um, That's one way of looking at it. Um, But the policy themselves, as I said, I have no problems with it, Canadian policies. But it's a question of how many can we accommodate at any given time based on work opportunities and that type of thing. Hello, George, thank you. Mary Shillington here. George and Terry and I and his wife, Peggy, have lived in three communities together, so we're old-time friends. Uh, and I remember you telling some stories about you as a young boy going with your dad to some of the internment camps. Could you just tell the community of this grouping a little bit about that,
4: because that's very interesting.
2: My father was in the medical field, and he worked for the hospital in New Denver during the war years, on and off. And um, uh, he was sometimes, he he did, uh, uh, he was a physiotherapist by training. But there was, as you know, a shortage of doctors and so on. So he was used to do some uh, basic work. And I remember in the summer going with my dad to Castle to the Dukabor community. Now, I didn't know too much about the Dukabor's, but I got to uh, learn uh, what little I could pick up uh, through those visits uh, to the uh, Dukabor community and uh, getting to know some of the people there. Um, At that time, I would be 10, 11 years old, 12 years old. uh, So I would have an understanding of that age group. Um, I also had uh, the opportunity to call, go to Caslo, which was an internment center. And uh, uh, my dad uh, used to take me to Caslow. We would go on the morning train from New Denver and then return home in the evening uh, on the same train going back. And that gave me an opportunity to see something of the life that people lived and other communities.
0: So, um, we'll have one more question from the floor, but before that question, George, um, I have somebody that has a written question here. Um, Do you have any information on the Japanese families that came to the Crow's Nest Lime Kiln to work? Um, Where did they go uh, after that?
2: Yeah, I, I don't know too many, but I did know some of them, and uh, unfortunately, they did move to Lethbridge, and some of them were members of the uh, japanese United church where I was the pastor for 13 years, but they have passed away since, so uh, I don't really know too many at this point.
5: Mark is my name. Now, you spoke about the discrimination of the Japanese-Canadians faced when they moved back right after the war. I'm just wondering, what would be the situation now for Japanese Canadians to try and move back to Japan? Would they be discriminated? And especially their children, if they were from mixed marriages. What, have you gone back to Japan? Have you experienced any of this? Yeah, I've
2: been to to Japan about seven or eight times, and I have uh, uh, two uh, nephews there. One younger nephew, uh, his wife speaks, reads, and writes English. So that helps my wife, Peggy, who speaks no Japanese whatsoever. Neither do I, for that matter. Uh, but um, what we find is, uh, yeah, what happens is, uh, if you're a Japanese, well, first of all, let me share my experience. I remember going to Japan, and people would say, are you Japanese? We've had students here at the Lethbridge Community College, and they would say, are you Japanese? And I said, well, what do I look like? You know. Uh, but, in Japan, if you're Japanese, you darn well better learn to speak Japanese properly. And I found that uh, a lot of the, the uh, people I didn't know and I had to ask questions, they uh, kind of poo-pooed me, you know. They said, what kind of a guy is this? He can't speak Japanese. So there is that kind of language discrimination. Uh, there's uh, Also, the fact that uh, I don't understand Japanese culture that well. For example, if I go visiting, it doesn't matter if you visit relatives or not. When you go visiting, you take a gift. It could be a pound of coffee or a a pound of sugar or whatever, but you take a gift. Well, I never did that, and I heard about it (laughs) by the back door. That, you know, this George, he didn't bring any gifts here. Uh, and there's cultural things Uh, very first time I went to Japan when you enter a house you take your shoes off I didn't know that I walked in and I had my shoes on and then uh, my uh, sister-in-law had to say to my brother uh, tell George he has to take his shoes off I didn't know that I do now Uh, so there are cultural things that I didn't know as a Canadian-born Japanese going to Japan and not understanding some of these basic things that they uh, have in their uh, lifestyle. Just before I turn over to uh, this is the, uh, you, you could get this on the table outside, but it's the Ghost Town Tour of, uh, of this year. It takes place in June, and I've got a little writing at the back, and then, like Paul Harvey, I would say the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is, come on this trip, and you'll get an earful. <laughs> Thank you.